Please, my friends, please, with all the chaos and turmoil of our current societal situation, please do not forget that we are in Eastertide, that we are continuing to celebrate Easter. Our texts from this fourth Sunday after Easter do not forget this and remind us of this reality. Our first lesson immediately pulls us back into the reality of Easter with Job's words, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at, the, at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. My Redeemer lives. Indeed, that is the heart of the Easter celebration, resurrection. And note, please, Job says that after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job believes in resurrection for himself as well. Let's turn to our psalm for today, uh, number 116, if you would, page 416 in the Pew Bibles. Now, to be honest, we do not have time to hardly scratch the surface of this amazing psalm, but we will hopefully gather a proper response to God's salvation. Psalm 116, again, page 416 in the Pew Bibles. Father Neil tells us that there is a Jewish tradition that this psalm was a thanksgiving of Hezekiah after his recovery from sickness. There is a good amount of linguistic evidence, however, that helps us, helps us to fix the date of the composition at a much later period, most probably immediately after the return from the captivity. It is possible that the psalm is purely typical and that the Jewish nation is personified as the speaker, but there is no improbability that in the supposition that the primary sense implies a thanksgiving for the recovery of some eminent Hebrew chief, prince, or priest, from a dangerous illness. So much for the context. Keep in mind, uh, if you will, however, despite that probable or possible contextualization, that the whole patristic period sees all the Psalms as properly interpreted by reference to the Messiah. Father Patrick Henry Reardon captures this understanding in the title of his text on the Psalms, Christ in the Psalms. And Reardon connects the salvation of the opening verses and the whole first half of the Psalm with verses 12 through 14. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Reardon notes, This cup of salvation, wrote Origen in the third century, is the cup of martyrdom, the Christian supreme identification with the death of the Lord. This is the cup of which Venerable Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, had prayed from his pyre of martyrdom excuse me, nearly a century, century earlier. I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and hour that I might receive a portion amongst the number of martyrs in the cup of thy Christ. 
He also, Reardon, references the scenes in the Gospels where James and John, through their mother, request of Jesus that they be given seats at his right and left hands on the day of his enthronement. Remember Jesus' response? He says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? That cup is the cup of salvation and the way of the cross, both. Reardon again, for the tradition of the church, the cup of salvation in Psalm 116 refers to the Holy Eucharist in its fullness, the wide dimensions of which include at once the grace of God, all his benefits to me, the cup of blessing and call upon the name of the Lord, the baptismal vows, I will fulfill my commitment to the Lord, the gathering of the church, now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, and the vocation to martyrdom, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 116 is prayed from within the very heart of the Christian mystery. The first verse is uh, in our New King James is actually a more accurate translation than the Coverdale Psalter, though the Coverdale is unparalleled in lyrical beauty as the Psalter for singing. <clears throat> I love the Lord because he has heard my voice. Neil, paraphrasing St. Ambrose, says, Let this be the song of the soul which is in his pilgrimage, afar from God. Let this be the song of the sheep which was lost. Let this be the song of that son who is dead and is alive again, who was lost and is found. Let this be the song of our own soul. God heard the cry of his Old Testament saints who were under the law awaiting the Messiah. God hears our cries now under the gospel as we continually call upon him for everlasting salvation. St. Ambrose notes that the first verse is not just a quid pro quo. Our love for God's hearing, he denotes, <clears throat> um, on the one hand, not, sorry, our love, our love for God's hearing. It's not a simple quid pro pro. It denotes, on the one hand, not merely the affection born of benefits, such as even the heathen entertain, but that deeper and surer and truer love of God, which turns to him even in trouble, with unswerving faith. It is thus no promise for the future, but a declaration of a fully formed habit, namely, that love and obedience which is the fulfilling of the law. That fully formed habit, or perhaps we can more easily identify with a fully forming habit, not a completed process, something that we are engaged in. That fully formed or forming habit is actually continually worked out in our lives by what the psalm speaks of doing. We see right up at the top of the psalm the response of the psalmist. I will call upon him as long as I live. Technically, upon him in our English, in that sentence, is 
added in the English to help construct the English sentence. Uh, that there's a quite a tricky way of translating where English doesn't always necessarily uh, work well when you just do a straight translation. So our students in Latin this year know that you have to turn it in, what, what's the phrase, into good English? Is that way, the way to put it? Uh, it? It actually has to make some sense in English. So technically, upon him in that sense is added in English to help with the understanding. But the addition there is not in any way guesswork. Three times in this psalm, the complete phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, which is directly translated from the Hebrew, it's all there in the Hebrew, call upon the name of the Lord, is used three times. One commentator notes that the mystery of the Holy Trinity is here veiled by a threefold invocation of the Most High. The phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, as our late Bishop Grote, God rest his soul, has noted to our church for years, call upon the name of the Lord is a phrase that our ears should always take note of. It is code, if you will, in the Bible, for what we understand when we say, worshiping God. It can denote, the and most often probably does, denote the apex of Christian worship in the mysteries of the body and blood, or it can also denote the divine office, the faithful gathered in prayer, the daily prayer cycle that we have, or even, I believe, probably it can denote formal devotional prayer to God. The psalmist is continually pointing his readers to the worship of God Almighty. This should be our response to the resurrection. The resurrection of our Lord and his vindication. Of course, this points to our resurrection at the end of the age, like Job saw, and it points out our current vindication before God the Father because we are in Christ. Our response to this salvation is to be a falling on our knees in thanksgiving and praise and honor and worship to and of God Almighty and his victorious Son, our Lord, as we pray and worship in and by the power of God's Holy Spirit. This is not a one-time or a once-in-a-while thing. This is that fully formed habit of love and obedience that St. Anselm was speaking of. This is a daily pattern for the Christian life, Eucharist on Sundays and at the feasts, with the daily praying morning and evening with the church around the world and the church that has gone on before us to be with Christ, and built upon that foundation a devotional life that helps us begin at least that Pauline command to pray unceasingly. Before we leave this psalm, let me also point out verse 17. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord again. This is, in the literal sense, says Neil, a promise to make the Levitical thank offering of fine flour, which answers to the festival cup named earlier in the psalm. And by the way, calling upon the name of the Lord follows both of those references.
And it represents for us the remaining species of the Eucharistic oblation, the bread and the wine. Which is why this psalm from verse 10 to the end is one of those appointed to be recited by priests of the Western Church before saying Mass. The early fathers who comment upon this psalm prefer to understand it still of the complete surrender of body and soul to God in one final act of self-dedication. That we make every Eucharist, if we're paying attention and we're using our heart and our mind, in the oblation prayers at the tail end of, or the latter end anyways, of the um, canon of the Mass. There's a lot here in just these few verses, isn't there? May we understand Easter, our redemption from death and sin, and our incorporation into the resurrection of Christ, and may we understand our proper response to it, calling on the name of the Lord, worshiping God with all we are formally, and of course informally in our devotional life, and of course in our living out day by day, hour by hour, that worship that we give to God. I end this morning by reminding us all in the words of our psalm this morning to take up that cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord and to offer to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. Amen.